Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to another amazing episode of the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. It's amazing today because I have a fantastic guest, Roger Dooley. Roger has written multiple really cool books, including the book Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Customers with Neuromarketing. And we're going to be talking to him for sure about neuromarketing. Sounds pretty high tech, doesn't it? In addition, he's written the book Friction, the Untapped Force that Can Be Your Most Powerful Advantage. He writes for Forbes Magazine. He is an international keynote speaker, a serial entrepreneur. Please welcome Roger Dooley to the show. Roger, welcome. And please add anything you'd like to in terms of introducing yourself to the audience. Well, thanks for inviting me, Howard. I think that was probably sufficient for now. Maybe something else will come out in conversation. You never know. <laughs> well, both the topic of friction and the topic of influence are both things that are of great interest to me. So let's start with, with the topic of neuromarketing. For those to whom that just sounds like a kind of a, a Star Trek-y term, what is neuromarketing and what are some things that would be beneficial to our audience to know about it? Well, my simplest definition of neuromarketing is any use of our understanding of how the brain works to market better. Other people may have different interpretations of that. There is a field sometimes used synonymously, sometimes not called consumer neuroscience, which more often than not involves actual measurements of neuroscientific metrics to determine, say, how people are reacting to advertising, to content, to a product, and so on. There's a real spectrum ranging from using sort of the hard tools of neuroscience like EEG or fMRI to actually measure brain activity or other biometric tools like galvanic skin response, pulse rate, breathing rate, and so on. You know, all of these things can be used to measure how people are responding. And the purpose of all of these techniques is to understand what the customer really thinks because customers cannot tell you what they think. I mean, they can tell you something and Sometimes they can give you an accurate response. More often than not, uh, either they can't answer accurately, like, you know, why do you use a particular brand? You know, I think that either one of us would have difficulty answering that with 100% accuracy. And sometimes people won't. If you ask them about things that might prove embarrassing to answer, consumption habits, status-oriented purchases and such, uh, they're not going to give you an honest answer. What neuromarketing attempts to do is get below the surface because according to Gerald Zaltman of Harvard, 95% of our decision-making processes are non-conscious. So that's a huge amount of area in our brain. Now, it's not a physical area, but a huge amount of area that we have to think about as marketers. And all too often, marketers focus on the simple things, features, benefits. You know, And we're proud of our products. We help develop these products. We think we're better than the competition. So clearly, those things are you know, important for us to emphasize but often they aren't what drives the customer to buy. So what are some of the most common things when you do this type of analysis and you hear the customer tells one story, but then you determine here's what's really driving them? Are there some common themes you see? I don't know if there are common themes so much as common ways to change customer behaviors. We've just seen Robert Cialdini, the legend of influence and persuasion, come out with a revised edition of his new book, Influence. And to mm -hmm. me, when marketers ask, well, okay, I want to start addressing that non-conscious 95%. Where do I begin? Uh, that's certainly one of the tools that I suggest because 
his original six and now seven principles are very fundamental and in general work across cultures, maybe a little bit differently in some cases, but things like social proof, when you see other people doing something, you are more likely to do that thing yourself. Reciprocation. If I do something for you, Howard, you're more likely to do something for me later on without it actually being a quid pro quo. And so these principles get really beneath the surface of the customer's brain, creating liking, uh, showing that you have things in common with your customer, uh, which has kind of evolved into a second concept, more powerful unity, showing that you and the customer are part of the same tribe in some way, that somehow you're related by family, showing that uh, you are uh, have a shared identity. Uh, this is really, really powerful stuff, and often marketers ignore it. When we look at neuromarketing, you've got these tools that you can measure things with, but what I tend to focus most of my writing on is how you can employ tools from behavioral science, stuff like Cialdini's principles, cognitive biases, of which there may be more than 100, depending on how fine you cut them up. Things like BJ Fogg's behavior model, which uh, says you need three things to create or change a behavior. Uh, and that behavior change could be forming a personal habit. It could also be getting the customer to click the buy button on your website. And uh, he says you've got to have motivation. The customer has to want to do the behavior or the result of doing the behavior. You've got to have ability, which is not too much effort, not too much difficulty. If it's too difficult, the customer won't do it. Finally, you have to have a trigger, or as he now calls it, a prompt, something to get the ball rolling. Uh, and when you start thinking about your marketing in terms of things like the fog behavior model, like Cialdini's principles, like cognitive biases, it really expands the tools that you can use to persuade your customer. Even if you can't afford some of the hard tools of neuroscience, although I do have one interesting development there, what I've seen, I've been writing about neuromarketing for 15 plus years now, Howard, and it's pretty much been the province of big brands for most of that time. In other words, if you want to do EEG studies, you've got to have a sizable marketing budget because, and even, even big companies can't use those tools for every single question they have to answer. Now we're seeing cheaper tools. We're seeing online eye tracking tools that are very accessible to even people with little or no budget. Today, uh, a company called Immersion Neuroscience is introducing a new product that uses the Apple smartwatch to measure some of these traditional neuromarketing metrics. Now, we haven't seen a lot of that out in the marketplace yet, but the company is founded by Paul Zak, the oxytocin pioneer. So I really have high hopes for that effort, and that promises to make it accessible to just about any size company. Fascinating. So can you, be, both because some of the people who listen are large enterprises, and also because some of these capabilities are coming down in cost, can you lay out a little bit more? If, if, I, if I wanted to hook subjects up to a bunch of wires or something to figure out what they were really thinking, I'm imagining an episode of Homeland, right, where someone's connected to the lie detector test. Have I... Have I got the right idea in mind? Or how does that actually work? You bring someone in, you, you hook them up, and then what kind of questions do you ask? How do you run a session like that so that you can actually figure out what's the customer really thinking? Well, it's a little bit like that Homeland scenario, although lie detectors, which actually aren't particularly good at de detecting lies, only measure one thing typically, which is galvanic skin response. A typical neuromarketing session might use EEG, which might be a cap with electrodes on it that goes on the customer's head while they watch your ad, uh, observe your content or whatever. 
Uh, it could include other biometric measures, heart rate, breathing rate, eye tracking, so they can see where your where the customer's eyes are tracking, like which part of the ad are they looking at then when they had this reaction. And when you combine all this data, you can get a good understanding of how engaged the customer is with your content or your ad, whether they're having an emotional response, and probably whether it's effective. And the, the key thing is that in dealing with a vendor of these neuromarketing services, you really want to be sure that they know how to interpret these because anybody can hook up an EEG cap to somebody's head. I could do that. And that would not mean very much because there is this massive avalanche of data coming out of those sensors. Uh, and you've got to know uh, how to condense them and how to interpret them into useful signals and then interpret those signals to understand something's happening. Uh, is the customer engaged? Are they angry? Are they happy? Are they sad? You know, what's, what's going on? And then the secondary step is, well, does this mean that they might buy my product at the end of the day? There's another tool, fMRI, which is typically used in academic university settings because uh, the machines themselves cost millions of dollars. And even big brands tend not to use fMRI very much because the sample sizes are very small too. But they have actually used fMRI to localize certain areas of the customer's brain that uh, seem to predict buying behavior. Now, it's not a buy button that you can push, but it is one more way of measuring uh, as a result of this ad, do we think the customer likes the product enough to buy it? Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started. Yeah, that's something else. I think about a market research session where you sit someone down and you, you intercept someone in a mall and you ask them some questions. Here you're like, hi, I'd like to hook you up to my electrodes. Do you find it difficult to recruit subjects that are willing to be so connected to such medical seeming devices? I think the companies that provide these services typically have panels of people that they recruit and they have recruiting techniques. Normally, this is done in a lab. Uh, so these volunteer recruits would come in and be checked out for suitability, correct uh, demographics. Clearly, the brand has questions. If you are selling BMWs, you will have perhaps a different customer profile than if you're selling faucets. Uh, regardless, the brand would specify the, the characters. They might even supply panelists, too. If they have panels of customers they regular, regularly survey, they may be able to suggest people for this kind of study. And I think the, the fact that more and more of this can be done online makes this process easier because you're right, getting them to put one of it's these scary. caps on their head. And <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes and the, the best ones come from uh, wet electrodes, which, uh, as you can imagine, doesn't sound real attractive if you're the person putting electrodes with little dabs of gooey stuff on your head. That's, that's not something that, you know, you'd Willingly do in a shopping mall, certainly, but the more this is um, democratized, if you will, uh, the easier it is to get larger numbers of panelists involved uh, and hopefully get more meaningful results. Because like fMRI is great, but if your panel size is 10 or 15 or 20, which represents a significant amount of time and expense to do, uh, that's still from a consumer product standpoint, not, not a very representative sample. I mean, normally, CMOs in that kind of organization, they want to see hundreds, if not thousands of people surveyed or tested. Yeah. And do you see this scaling more? I mean, I think about what Google and Alexa and others do now, which is to try to get every signal they can to predict buying behavior. I remember once, and this was so many years ago, seeing a demo at a trade show. And essentially, you walked up to the booth 
and it was doing mouse tracking. And this is probably five years ago. And you would go on a little thing they had. It was just like a little game. And you played it for just a minute or two. And based on the motion of your mouse, it would predict your gender. And it was like 90% accurate that just by how you move the mouse, like I guess the pathways or how curvy or straight or the the level of acceleration or whatever else, they were able to predict gender. It's funny because I haven't heard anything more about that. You know, sometimes you see something like that's amazing and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Might we see in the future that our interactions in real time with Facebook, et cetera, or are they already doing this, already using some of these principles? Obviously, they don't have EEGs connected to our brains yet while we're online. Alexa, for example, can hear my tone of voice. I don't know if they're doing anything with that, but do you see that becoming something that's not just a lab technology, but something that scales up the way that things like, uh, you know, looking at your pathways of navigating through a website, things like that are used to determine what, you know, your marketing interests, things like that. Right. Well, I think you've hit on two points there, Howard. One is, you know, other metrics that you can use. One technique that some people claim is accurate, others say is not quite so accurate, is facial coding, measuring people's facial expressions, either in real time or sometimes by analyzing video later and gauging their emotional response to whatever it is you're showing them. I know that there's one company, Affective, out there that has received millions of dollars of funding to employ that technology for the auto industry to measure whether drivers are engaged, what their emotional status is, make sure they're paying attention to the road. There are other types of activities. But, you know, when you talk about measuring mouse behavior, I, I'm not familiar with the gender study. That's pretty interesting. Uh, I'm, they might have had a little guy behind a curtain or something, too. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> uh, but uh, maybe it really is predictive. Maybe there's just not a market for predicting gender by how people move their mouse around. But mm -hmm. the way people do move their mouse around on your website, that is significant. There are mouse tracking tools. There are click tracking tools. If you have not done click tracking on your site, which basically measures both mouse motion and mouse clicks, uh, if you haven't done that before and you look at what people are clicking on on your website or perhaps tapping on on your mobile app, you'll find people are tapping on weird stuff that you didn't expect them to. Uh, and sometimes you find actual hotspots there where a lot of people are tapping on that. And, you know, when you go to your designer, or web developer, or app developer and say, hey, uh, people are clicking on this thing, well, they'll say, well, that's because they're stupid. Uh, you know, they, that's obviously not clickable. I think the message is, uh, no, if people are clicking on something in reasonably large numbers, they aren't stupid. The design is stupid because it's not obvious what they're supposed to be clicking on. And, uh, you know, so I think that people who aren't doing that, that's a very inexpensive way of measuring actual customer behavior. And to me, you know, when you're doing neuromarketing studies, you are one step removed from actual customer behavior. You're measuring typically response to an ad, response to a product, response to something else, and then you're going to try and infer what their behavior will be. When you measure customer behavior on your website, you are measuring what customers are actually doing. So to me, that is an excellent way to do it, and it can be surprisingly cheap. Yeah, fascinating. And I think a lot of companies are at some level doing that, but of course, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure some aren't, or they may have the data and they don't always know exactly what to make of it, you know, at, at increasingly sophisticated levels. Yeah, I think this area of facial emotion detection and eye tracking, hearing you talk about it, I mean, the, the thought that's running through my mind is in part, well, it's going to be tough. Like, imagine the value to a marketer if you could track all your customers all the time that way. It would seem like a gold mine. 
But on the other hand, if Amazon said, would you just turn your camera on while you're browsing Amazon so we can watch you? I would imagine that most people are like, mm, no, I'm going to pass on that. But Samsung had a feature that where you could read something. And as you get to the bottom of the screen, it does eye tracking and actually moves the screen up for you. And I think it's one of those like deeply nested features you have to turn on, like experimental. And I tried it once and I didn't find it particularly pleasant. So that, that, would, that would drive me crazy, Howard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but it makes me think like maybe there's an opportunity, like if we could create features that create a convenience for people, and maybe I'm thinking like an evil person here, but they could create convenience for people to leave their cameras on, you know, ways of using gestures to control things. Like I think about some of the games my son plays where the camera is on because it's part of the gameplay. If all of a sudden your commerce experience evolved so that your camera was on, not so that we could spy on you, but for some other reasons that benefited you as a shopper, then all of a sudden we'd have all that data and then imagine what good, I mean, frankly, and evil we could do. It's like anything, but you know, conceivably gain so much knowledge and insight into how every single customer feels. I think that's both interesting and scary, but I don't know if that's the future or not. But as I see more and more, like just like we've experienced over the last few years, many of us have Alexa constantly listening to us, which wasn't something that was happening before. I wonder if the future will be, will be cameras as well. Well, it could be, but I think that there would be a risk there of suddenly getting a headline in the Wall Street Journal about what you're doing with that data. In other words, you tell the customer that we want to help you do this thing but you're also gleaning other data and then employing that to sell more stuff. To me, there's a risk there for brands. I think that we've seen a new emphasis on privacy. Look at what Apple's doing with uh, their new privacy right. features. Uh, that hasn't fully played out yet, but I think we'll see how protective of their privacy customers are. I think customers uh, have allowed Alexa to be on all the time because so far there's no indication that that data is being misused in any way. And it's mm -hmm. pretty handy to uh, have her listening and at your beck and call. But I think that if there was any indication that uh, somehow this was being uh, used for a purpose that is uh, even sounded evil to people, you would have a big revolt on your hands. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. Before we move on, I want to talk about friction. But before we go there, I would like to just ask, you've mentioned uh, several things, I think, that are, we've been in the realm a little bit of the future and some, some of the kind of fun, most interesting aspects. But on, a, on the most practical level, if you're speaking to a marketer today and they said, you know, I... I'm not expecting to attach all my customers to, to EEGs at the moment, but what are like the top few things you'd say, and I'm, I know there's a lot more in your book, but like you'd advise a marketer to be thinking about to apply some of these principles to their day-to-day -day work? Well, first of all, I think there are cheap ways to measure customer behavior, even if you can't hook them up to electrodes. Uh, we talked about some of the tools, uh, these uh, uh, customer behavior tracking tools uh, that will see what they're doing on your website or your mobile app. Uh, Google Analytics uh, has way more data in it than you'll probably ever use. And there are certainly other analytics tools as well out there. Uh, there's a wealth of information that if you can root out the things that, you know, where people are getting stuck in your processes, uh, what people are doing, that's going to tell you a lot. And then I would look at the tools of behavioral science, these very simple cognitive biases that you can employ, hopefully in an ethical way. And I, I think if you look at what other people are doing, when you go to a typical travel site, Howard, we haven't been traveling much lately, but uh, uh, jump on a travel site, you will see when you look up flights that there are only two seats left on the plane at this price, uh, or there's only uh, one hotel room left at this price, and scarcity. 20 people are looking at this hotel right now. Uh, you know, what, what we're seeing there is scarcity. Uh, we're seeing social proof. Uh, they'll show you 
30 people have booked this hotel in the last 24 hours. Uh, more social proof. Uh, they may even say people from your city are looking at this hotel now. They'll do all of these things. And these are all based on behavioral science. These big travel companies employ full-time PhD behavioral scientists to come up with these techniques. And they do a huge amount of testing. And that's the other thing. You know, don't assume that because something worked for one site, whether it's your competitor or a business in a different industry, that's going to work for you. Uh, you know, use that to create your hypothesis and then use some of the really simple A-B testing tools out there to test it against whatever you're doing now. If it improves it, then adopt it. If it doesn't improve it, try something else. But testing is your most powerful tool. Amazon, I have tremendous respect for as a company. If you look at their growth, uh, there's nothing that compares. One of their secrets is an experimental culture that tries stuff, tests it, measures the results, and then either discards it or improves it. Uh, and this is an ongoing process. At any given point, they may be testing hundreds of different things on their website, little tiny things that as a customer, you never notice. When was the last time Amazon redid their website? I don't know. I don't think they've ever redone their website. But if you actually compared a screenshot from 10 years ago, you would find lots of little changes. And these aren't random changes that some marketing manager thought, well, I think this is going to work better. This is something that somebody uh, had an idea, they tested it, and it beat whatever it was they were doing before. I'm sure you're right about that. Awesome. Thank you. That's a great set of uh, principles. With our remaining time, I want to talk about the topic of friction because that's something I often am thinking about is finding the friction to figure out how to differentiate. But can you kind of give your take on that, the power of friction, why you've written a book about it, and, and what advice would you have for marketers or people in product development around how to use friction as a tool? Can't get enough of winning digital customers? You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. Right. Well, I'm, I mentioned in BJ Fogg's behavior model, which I think is pretty accurate. And I have my own little framework called the persuasion slide that is loosely based on that. Friction is what stops people from progressing to the next step. Uh, it is difficulty. It's effort. According to Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, there is a law of least effort that applies to human behavior, and that's both uh, physical effort, but cognitive effort too. If people have to think even to do whatever it is you want them to do, uh, they're less likely to do it. And you know, one thing I've encountered is people say, oh, I know all about friction. If you look at successful digital companies, uh, they have focused on that. Uh, why did Instagram win? Part of it was friction reduction. They made it so incredibly easy uh, to post photos and edit photos and share photos that they grew when very similar, maybe even superior photo apps didn't. Uh, same thing for WhatsApp. Their entire onboarding process, including verifying your phone, took just two minutes of time. And then they added one little click where you could invite all your friends to go through that same process. That was a friction-based strategy. They were taking the friction out of their process. But I encounter friction constantly, Howard, especially uh, in the pandemic. You find all these companies apologizing for why things are worse in their customer experience. And hopefully most companies have stopped doing that. I'm still encountering a few or who have shifted the blame to you know higher than expected volume. This is why you have to wait. <clears throat> this is why we can't take care of you right now. Often it's cheaper to focus on making things easier for your customers rather than trying to get them to do stuff with, by motivating them more. You know, if you have an e-commerce site, you can sell more stuff if you give away shipping, if you normally charge shipping. You can sell more stuff if you drop your prices, give them a discount. 
That stuff all costs money. It's out of your pocket. But if you make it easier for your customers, that generally costs you nothing other than maybe a little bit of one-time development effort. And that will keep getting you more customers day after day, month after month, year after year. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And do you feel that most companies know where that friction is or is part of the challenge to actually figure out what is it that's creating that friction? Well, a few smart companies do. I mentioned some uh, digital companies. like Amazon knows where its friction is. Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. himself has said, when you reduce friction, you make something easy, people do more of it. And mm -hmm. that could be buying more stuff, watching more videos, whatever he wants people to do. Uh, many companies simply aren't aware. Many executives have never gone through their own processes to see what customers actually experience. That's if right. they want to book a hotel room, their assistant books a hotel room. If they want to buy something, their you know, assistant buys it. When people actually go through, in fact, if you ask a typical marketing manager, well, how many steps are there in your checkout process? I think like, eh, three. Because they're thinking, well, you do this stuff and then you click next. That's one and again and again. But what you've really got to do is count every single field the customers have to fill out. How much information are you trying to get from them? Do they have to set up an account to do business with you? Or do you have a way of checking out without an account? Do they have to give you their credit card information? Or can they use some kind of third party like Google Pay or PayPal or something? All of these things are friction elements that people think, well, it's, it's normal. Security is a huge thing today, Howard. We've just been hearing about these horrendous hacks, uh, shut down uh, you know entire pipeline system. They shut down the Irish healthcare system. Uh, so clearly security is important for every size business, uh, huge businesses, small businesses. Uh, but often they give free reign to the security people and these people do not have customer experience in their job description. So they employ techniques that sound like a best practice but really just make it more difficult for customers. You know, creating passwords that people are never going to remember and then maybe forcing them to change passwords, logging them out uh, if you're there idle for 10 minutes on your the website. Now, you know, you have to choose a methodology that's appropriate for your business. If you are a bank uh, where customers may have large sums of money that they can transfer in and out, uh, then you want to maybe not let people stay logged in forever. If they're idle for a little bit, maybe you do want to log them out. You do want to have a secure process. But I see this all the time on sites where they don't have those same kinds of security needs. Uh, you know, I used to be a 100K flyer on United until the uh, pandemic hit. And when you're making reservations, even though I was a very frequent uh, user of their website using the same computer that I used for five years, uh, every month they'd log me out. They'd say, oh, hey, we don't recognize your device. Now you've got to reauthenticate using these, you know, what who's your favorite author? You know, I try to, what, how did I answer that five years ago? You know, it's crazy when you're on their supposedly high service level, dedicated customer service line, they force you to listen to lengthy announcements about a questionnaire about your customer experience. They have ruined your customer experience just by asking you that. You know, I'm pretty sure that if their CMO uh, had to make his or her own reservations and they were on that same supposedly elite customer support line and they had to go through that process i'd say well wait i was on the line 10 minutes ago it made me do this why is it doing it again and again and they'd say hey we got to stop doing this but you know it doesn't happen yes yes well that's a powerful technique i find sometimes if you're doing a workshop or you're trying to persuade executives to fund something is to Give them that experience and have them call their call center or have them go on their own website. I think that's right. The point you make about security, and God bless them, because of course, it's a thankless job in many cases, being in information security. But you're right. 
I, I sometimes joke that if the security people designed our buildings, there'd be no doors and no windows. Totally secure, but obviously not so usable. Right. That's, I think that's a good analogy. And uh, I'll throw one, one other thought uh, for you, Howard. Uh, my friend Martin Lindstrom, who also has written extensively about neuromarketing, his latest book, The Ministry of Common Sense, gets, gets into some of these customer experience issues. And a couple of the things that uh, he's done with executives uh, were forced them to go through the, what their customers do. He was consulting for a large credit card company uh, and was going out to dinner with the executives. He, unbeknownst to the CMO, had them put his credit card on hold, the CMO's credit card on hold. And when the CMO went to pick up the check, he had to go through the horribly frustrating levels of support to get that problem solved so he could pay for dinner. Uh, and by the end of it, it's like, holy cow, this is what our customers go through. Uh, and he has a couple other kind of hilarious examples like that where he made people go through the real experience. One, one executive wanted to fire him because they were so unhappy with the experience that they were forced to go through, even though that was the experience that the customers had. And somebody was probably saying, we want to change this. And someone else was saying, no, no, we can't because of whatever. Whenever you find this stuff that doesn't seem like it's common sense, you always have to be sure to check and find out there's some reason it was made that way. And I'm not saying it's a good reason, but if you don't find out the reason, even if you change it, it's probably going to wind up going back. So to me, it's always trying to really peel back down and say, this doesn't make any sense, but hmm, somebody must have thought there was a good reason for this. What was it? Well, I, I couldn't agree more with the idea of friction, and I think your books are awesome. There's that famous H.L. Mencken quote, which is that uh, nobody ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. And I feel like today, that was from about 100 years ago, or I feel like today you could update that and say, nobody ever went broke overestimating the laziness of the American public. And I don't even mean that in a, in a judgmental way. I speak of myself as much as anybody else, but we've just become so accustomed to things being made easy for us by great customer experiences that then these little inconveniences that maybe in a prior era, whether it's waiting in line or sorting through things or filling out forms, just become just intolerable. Amazon and other companies like Amazon are raising the bar for everybody else. And the uh, important thing in customer experience, Howard, is that people are not comparing your company, your brand to your direct competitors necessarily. You may look and say, well, hey, I've checked out my competitors' experiences and we're better than they are, at least as good and in some cases quite a bit better. Uh, they are comparing you to Amazon. They're comparing you to whatever they think is a great experience, to Uber. Uh, and if you are more effortful, if you seem more effortful, then uh, you've got high friction. And I may, may steal that quote of yours, Howard. I really like that. You're welcome to it. I might not have even made it up. I absorb things and then I'm like, hey, I just had a thought. And then someone's like, yeah, someone told you that last week. Sorry. Anyway, great. Well, Roger, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. I know people are going to be interested in getting your books. I'm assuming they're available wherever fine books are sold. But what should they know if they want to learn more about you? Best place to get your books, best place to read your, your writings. What, what would you like them to know about how to further connect with you? Well, best jumping off point for everything is rogerdooley.com. I've got links to my social profiles, my podcasts, uh, my neuromarketing blog, my Forbes blog, and pretty much uh, everything else there. On social media, I'm most active on Twitter, where I'm at Roger Dooley, and LinkedIn, where I am Roger Dooley. Pretty easy to find. Awesome. And we'll put those links in the show notes as well, so you guys can find them there. Well, Roger, thank you so much for being here. Amazing stuff. Makes me want to reread your books, because I some of what you're like, I'm like, yeah, I remember reading it. And others, I'm like, I got to go back and check that out again. So I'm going to do that. Put that on my to-do list. Thank you so much for being here. And thank all of you, as always, for listening, for watching the podcast. And we'll look forward to seeing you all next time.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.